Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker. Here's a joke. What's the difference between a viola and a trampoline? I don't know what is the difference. Uh, you don't have to tune a trampoline before you jump on it. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from viola player and founding member of the Velvet Underground, John Cale. Yes. That'll help break the ice. We'll be hearing more from John later. Also, we chat with director David O. Russell. His latest film, Silver Linings Playbook, was nominated for eight Academy Awards this week. Plus, actor and comedian Nick Kroll talks about getting run out of Munich on a rail. Author George Saunders weighs messenger bags versus man purses. We find out why the Quaz is the new black. And we inhale the latest musical element, Foxygen. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. President Obama's second-term cabinet is taking shape. Flu season is getting worse. Cases are now widespread in more than two-thirds of the country. Three of baseball's biggest names were shut out of the Hall of Fame. Now for a story you might not have heard. We are speaking with Sadie Stein. She is deputy editor of the literary magazine The Paris Review. Sadie, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Well, I'll definitely be talking about the fact that The Omnivore, which is a literary journal is for the second year in a row giving out the Hatchet Job Awards Ah. for the best negative review given to a book. A a good review of a bad book. Excellent review of a book the critic deemed bad. (laughs) How's that for politics? All right. Well, can you read us an excerpt of one of these hatchet jobs? Sure. Uh, Why don't I read from Zoe Heller's review of Salman Rushdie's book, Joseph Anton, because that is one of the more noteworthy. Really? Salman Rushdie. And we had him on the show, and he was very nice. As she wrote in the New York Review... A man living under threat of death for nine years is not to be blamed for occasionally characterizing his plight in grandiloquent terms. But one would hope that when recollecting his emotions in freedom and safety, he might bring some ironic detachment to bear on his own bombast. (laughs) Hindsight, alas, has had no sobering effect on Rushdie's magisterial amour propre. An unembarrassed sense of what he is owed as an embattled literary immortal in waiting pervades his book. That's a pretty grand, eloquent takedown of someone being grand eloquent. That's true. I I can imagine reading that review while eating at Guy Fieri's restaurant. (laughs) Great idea. Which received the worst restaurant review of the entire year. Be negative on top of negative. I'm alerting the Whitney. This sounds like an installation. (laughs) Sadie Stein, thank you for the small talk. Thank you for having me. And now time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our handcrafted barrel-aged history lesson with booze. First, the history part. This week, back in 1901, a discovery in southeast Texas changed the world forever. Now, the folks at your dinner party might think we're talking about fajitas. We're not. But Michelle Phillippe's here with the real story. Texas was known mainly for cattle and cotton, till Patillo Higgins came along. An amateur geologist, Higgins was obsessed with Spindletop Hill near the town of Beaumont, Texas. The hill was formed by what's called a salt dome, a bulge of underground minerals that pushed up the rock above it. Higgins' theory? The dome would also create cavities in the earth around it, a great hiding place for lakes of oil. Only problem? No one believed him. 
especially after his company drilled three wells on Spindletop that struck only quicksand. Finally, Higgins placed an ad for some expert help and got one response from a guy named Anthony Lucas, a salt miner who also suspected salt domes hid oil. The men struck a deal and Lucas started drilling. It took months, but on January 10th, 1901, mud bubbled up from his well, then an eruption of natural gas, and then the most powerful oil geyser the world had ever seen shot more than 100 feet into the air. It spit out 100,000 gallons a day, more than all the oil wells in America combined. The Lucas Gusher changed Texas almost overnight. Oil prospectors flooded in, companies like Gulf and Texaco sprung up, Beaumont land that had been 10 bucks an acre suddenly sold for thousands. And the gusher changed the world, too, because all that newfound oil fueled the nascent automobile industry, literally. Industries kept sucking oil and other resources out of Spindletop Hill for most of the century. Maybe too much, actually. A monument to the Lucas Gusher had to be moved away from Spindletop when the ground beneath it subsided. That was the history lesson. Now it's time for the drink to go along with it. I'm on the line with Paul Schrack. He is a bartender at The Grill in Beaumont, Texas, the town that the Spindletop oil well helped put on the map. Paul, you heard the history. What cocktail did that inspire you to make? Tonight I decided to go with the Black Gold Martini. The Black Gold Martini. I I think I know where the name came from. Tell me how you make it. All right. So first of all, you take the martini glass, you wet the rim. I decided to go with a sugar and coffee ground blend. So you mix those together. And then after the rim's wet, then you roll the rim into the combination of the two. And so it looks black and sparkly, basically. Basically, yes. Then you take Goldschlager liqueur, Mm -hmm. which has gold flakes in it. So you put that in. All the gold flakes come out. Uh, It's a clear liqueur as well. Mm -hmm. So that goes into the martini glass. All right, so we have the Goldschlagers in there. So next, I have Patron Cafe XO. What is that? It's a coffee-flavored tequila. So Goldschlager has kind of a cinnamon flavor, right? It does. And then coffee tequila. These are big, bold flavors. I'd expect nothing less from Texas. Most definitely the best. (laughs) Biggest and the best. (laughs) And the craziest uh, so far. So go ahead. What what else are you going to put into this martini? And I use use that term lightly. So you take the Patron Cafe XL. You take a bartender's spoon. It's just a longer spoon. And then you drizzle liqueur over the top. It's heavier, so it sinks to the bottom. Okay. So And then it separates and looks like an oil slick. <laughs> wow. And then that's it? That you, that's the drink? That's the drink for the evening. So, hey, have you lived in Beaumont your whole life? Are you from Beaumont? I'm actually from Seattle, Washington. So okay. I've been down here about an hour or a year and a half. You've just recently moved down there. Are you going to find your treasure in Beaumont, Texas? I already have. My girlfriend and I have a 19-month-old daughter. Okay. And she's originally from this area. And it's great. I love Texas. Enrico, I asked Paul what about Beaumont, Texas made it such an attractive place for dinosaurs to live 230 million years ago. Nice. Yeah, and he said the Cajun food and the proximity to the beach. <laughs> that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Because brontosauruses love gumbo. 
by the sea. Barney loves Zydeco. Sure. Uh, folks, we have the recipe and photos of the black gold martini. That's martini with air quotes. At our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And today, our guest is musician John Cale. In 1965, he co-founded the Velvet Underground, one of the most influential rock bands in history. He is on tour this winter in support of his 16th solo album. We asked him to experiment with making us a list. This is John Cale and my new album. It's called Shifty Adventures in Nookie Wood. I use a lot of sonic experimentation in producing these records. And um, I was thinking about three three events in my life that what I've been startled or surprised by the result of some experiments. The first of these was a performance art piece that I created in college. And it was performed in the Grand Hall of Goldsmiths in London. It involved screaming at a potted plant until it died. That was the instruction for Robin Page, the performer. It was kind of about making the task an impossible one for the performer because you can't scream at a potted plant and kill it. First of all, there was this grand stage at the Grand Hall of the college, which has a huge pipe organ, it's grandiose, and, and in the middle of the stage was a bar stool with a potted plant on it. And Robin started screaming at the other end of the college. So the audience was sitting in the, in, in the hall and you heard this coming. He created a threatening situation. It really worked well right up until the moment that he came slamming into the hall itself. I mean, he came in, you know, like a gunslinger. He just shoved the doors open and came marching in, screaming. And I just thought he blew it. I mean, you know, he should never have come in. He should have stayed outside the door or walked around it or something. It would have been, it would have been great. But once you, somebody actually sees who's doing it, the effect is gone. I mean, I, I learned that if you're going to threaten somebody, you don't come out and overtly do it. He created a threatening situation, but what you don't want to do is resolve it. My second choice would be my experience with Yanis Anakis. He was a Greek composer who uh, was running the masterclass in composition at Tanglewood in 1963. And his classes consisted of probability theory. What are the possibilities of a B-flat happening in the next six bars, kind of? So his, he was at the board, the chalkboard, putting up Fourier series and Heisenberg principle and working out the mathematics. It was fascinating because everybody in the class was just stunned. They were just sitting there looking at all this algebra on the, on the board. But then I heard his orchestral pieces. And there's one piece called Pithopracta. That was an extraordinary auditory experience. I mean, it was taking strings, a lot of strings, and a lot of the string players would be hitting the body of the strings and plucking, and you got this really spiky atmosphere going on that was extraordinary. And I thought, now this has nothing to do with mathematics at all. This is pure Greek national music. It just made absolute sense to me. So that 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 was the experience. That was kind of a, a surprise, a real surprise, and, and and a really good one. Number three was the experiment. There was part of the work we were doing as a group called the Dream Syndicate, and I was playing amplified viola. And one of the experiments we did, I wanted to play three strings at once. We put guitar strings on the viola 
And then I filed the bridge down so I could use a cello bow and hold three strings at once. And it kind of created a roar. It was kind of like having a B-52 in your living room. When I was playing it, the whole thing, when it was in tune, was like a physical grip on you. You felt it in your arms and, you, and you know, you, yeah, it was, it was very powerful. I mean, you really felt this, this roar, this rumble going on. The thing about experimentation is that you, you can't quite see where you're going to end up. And if you persevere with it, some interesting things happen. I mean, the fact that we rehearsed for a year and a half, you know, for that length, we got somewhere where nobody had studied before. But unfortunately, it also was at the time that the Beatles explosion happened in New York. And all of a sudden I realized, hey, I've lost out on my, my teenage years. And I thought, man, it'd be great to have a rock and roll band. And hence, the Velvet Underground. The guest list from John Cale. His latest album is called Shifty Adventures in Nookie Wood. Next week, he headlines a tribute to his former bandmate Nico at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. And we're going to take a break. Coming up, George Saunders, author of the new book, 10th of December, asks the ultimate question. Is there a difference between a messenger bag and a man purse? That and other mysteries solved yeah. when the dinner party continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Coming up, Nick Kroll, star of the new Comedy Central series, Kroll Show, tells us about the worst Yom Kippur ever. And goodbye, Queen Amon. There's Au revoir. A, yeah, there's a new trendy <laughs> French dessert in town. We will learn what it is later. But first, it is time for our etiquette segment. Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave. And here to answer them this week is George Saunders. He's been compared to Mark Twain and Kurt Vonnegut for his sharp satire and the deep humanity of his writing. His short stories and essays have won him a number of awards, including a MacArthur Genius Grant. Mm. This week, he released his first book in seven years. It's a collection of short stories entitled 10th of December. The New York Times calls it the best book you'll read all year, which is probably disheartening news for all the other authors who have books coming out this year. Yeah, and especially if anybody reads Tolstoy, then we have to retract the headline. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Maybe. That's a good point. It's the only book I'm going to read this year because <laughs> I don't want to prove the New York Times wrong. Yeah, yeah that would make it happen. <laughs> so, George, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me back. You stopped by a couple years ago to talk with us about an essay you wrote for GQ about a homeless camp, kind of a foreclosure tent city right. that popped up outside of Fresno. Many of the short stories in your new collection are also set amidst folks who are struggling. Some of your characters are struggling with brain cancer, PTSD. And yet, as a reader, you're not plunged into despair. Yes. So was, was this a goal of yours, or did that just happen? Probably it just happened. I mean, I, I, the way I work, I do a, a ton of revision. And so the pieces tend to kind of start in one place that's a little sentimental or corny or sometimes too harsh. And then over many, like hundreds of rewrites, it kind of moves towards how I would actually feel about a thing. So to me, you know, all those, the hardships of life and so on, they, they take place. And yet at the same time, there's a kind of resilience that people have to deal with them. So the, the goal would be to kind of reflect that in the stories that 
things can really get crappy and also they don't necessarily destroy you and actually it's sort of a lively you know, confluence of those two things. Is is there a reason why you, you sort of focused on these kind of despairing characters this time around? Really, no, because, you know, I don't. I honestly don't have any intentionality at the start. I, I wasn't even aware that I was starting this book when I actually did start it. So my, my model is that if you do 10,000 intuitive choices during the seven years you're writing a book, whatever's important to you will automatically be there. And it'll probably be there in a way that would be much more interesting than if you sat down in 2006 and said, okay, I'm going to write this book. There, there's a great line. I think Gerald Stern said this, and I'll clean it up for radio, but it's, he said, uh, <laughs> Thanks. yeah, if you start off to write a poem about two dogs making love and you, you write a poem about two dogs making love, then you wrote a poem about two dogs making love. <laughs> you know, and, and, and I think Einstein said it slightly more elevated. He said, uh, no interesting problem is ever solved in the plane of its original conception, mm. which means you your initial intention doesn't really make that much difference. Yeah, I like your idea though, because I'm thinking I'm picturing two wolves cuddling now, one smoking a cigarette and <laughs> yeah. making love. That might be more about you than. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that's true. Uh, so let us let's bring it back around to our listeners. Then they have sent in a number of questions that they would like you to answer. You ready for these? Yes, but I'm very nervous about giving advice because I I don't believe in it. Really? I mean, you're a dad and a teacher. It seems yeah, like you have yeah, to. that's a good point. All right, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> yeah. Here is something from Kate in Sydney, Australia. And this is quite a serious question, actually. What is the right thing to say to acknowledge a colleague who has just been made redundant? Right. You can you can sort of feel how painful it is by the phrase redundant. You know, she's been made redundant. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, honestly, you know, when I was younger, and I've worked in corporate things where you would find out on Wednesday that so-and-so was leaving on Friday. And I, my first instinct was always to assassinate the corporation, like to say, oh, they're totally screwing you, man. You're great. And and then reveal some painful personal secret about the guy who had fired him or something. Yeah, but yeah, now right. I think my instinct is more just to kind of like really say sincerely that you're sorry it happened, you know, just because in that situation, the person who's been fired really doesn't need much from you except maybe a clean exit in some sense that they're still okay with you. And The thing I have a hard time with is do you say, let's keep in touch, even if maybe your colleague wasn't that close to you? Like maybe you didn't hang out outside the workplace, but you want to make them feel like, well, it's not the end of the world. I mean, what I find is for me personally, the most important thing is to not to not have too much of an agenda. If, you know, for example, if you're the person who got the person fired, you know, <laughs> then your agenda is to cover your <laughs> And you would come in heavy with that. Or if you secretly never liked the person, your agenda would be to feign that you did. So what I find is that if I can kind of leave my agenda at the door, listen to what the person's actually saying, then it turns out to be not so much about me and more about what they might need at the moment. That that sounds like good advice to me, George. I think you're doing fine. All right. There you go, Kate. Uh, We have another question. This one comes from Isaac in Philadelphia. Isaac asks, how should I respond when my messenger bag is called a man purse? I am 13, by the way, if that helps. That's a pretty good sentence. Good book title. When your messenger bag is called a man purse. (laughs) Explorations in social anxiety. I like that he says, I'm 13, by the way, if that helps. (laughs) Well, it kind of does, you know, because I like him. I like Isaac uh, because he's somebody who um, knows he's going to catch grief for carrying the man bag and yet does it anyway. Yeah. So, Well, but but the thing is he wouldn't catch grief for carrying a messenger bag. He will catch grief for carrying a man purse. Yeah. So maybe he has to sort of reconceptualize what that thing is. It's definitely a messenger bag. It is definitely not a man purse. Maybe he should. Is there a difference between a messenger bag and a man purse? Nope. 
I think it's just point of view. So I think the old conservative backpackers somehow get threatened yeah. when they see a yeah. messenger bag. You know, when I was 13, I would just always carry around a gutted bear and with all my stuff inside of it. And then you never oh. caught any grief for that. Yeah. You know? No way. You never catch any friends yeah. that way yeah. either. But No, not so many. Sometimes a coyote. I think Isaac Isaac's answer could be in his question. He could look at them and say, this is a messenger bag. I'm 13, by the way, if that helps. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Don't apologize. That's right. Carry your bear purse yeah. with pride. All right. We, I think we have time for just one more question. Brendan, do you want to? A question from Henry in the U.K., Right. As a non-drinker, I want to be available for my drinking friends if they should need a designated driver. How do I say, I trust you, but here I am if you need it, without being condescending or sounding like, you're a stumbling drunk, but I am Captain Sobriety, and I will come to the rescue. <laughs> a stereotypical question from England. Well, yeah, well, uh, I don't get it. Could, could, couldn't you just say, you're wasted? You know, I'll drive. You are dealing with people who are drunk. I don't yeah. think they really care how you put it. Right. Well, of course, point. they're also very polite over there, so I don't know. Mm, this is true. I think, I mean, I would just say at the beginning of the night, just announce it. Because, you know, I never drank till I was the day before I graduated from college. So I was always what? that. Yeah, yeah. I was always that guy. Where did you go to college? The Colorado School of Mines, which is a big, well, they're right up there with the best drinking schools. <laughs> uh, what was wrong with you? I, did, I just, I think I was a bit of a control freak and I didn't like the... The mayhem. Yeah. And the other thing, I get when I was in high school, this neighbor of mine bet me $500 that I would drink before I was 18. And so I just didn't, you know, to get the money. And he paid me. And by that time, I'd been to enough drunken brawls where nobody notices you're not drunk, you know. I would yeah. take a beer can and fill it with water and just drink the water, you know. So did you start drinking when you got the MacArthur Genius Grant? You're like, I'm in the money. <laughs> no, I, I started, uh, I went over to Asia, actually. It worked in the oil fields, and that was when I really made up for lost time. Is that true? Yeah. Worked in Sumatra, and there was a little kind of a Quonset hut that we'd go into and drink. And uh, Man. So I remember, like, in, when I was in school, you know, I thought, well, what's, you know, maybe four beers, five beers is good. But this was beer with a much higher alcohol content. So I, it was... Man, you broke your fast hard. I did, I did. <laughs> you were not messing around. Yeah. So I guess, Henry, in the UK, your driving services are needed in Sumatra. Yeah. <laughs> and George Saunders, thank you so much for telling our audience how to behave. Thank you. And now, time to eavesdrop. Actor and comic Nick Kroll is best known for playing the defense attorney Rodney Ruxin on the FX channel's The League. This week, his new sketch comedy show, Kroll Show, premieres on Comedy Central. Today, we overhear him tell a tale about his life before acting. I was 18 and I was living in Spain, spending a lot of time with uh, my buddy Mark from California. And he was still trying to speak Spanish all the time. So one day he comes up to me and he's like, Nicolás, vamos a Germany a beber muchas cervezas para uh, Oktoberfest. And I was like, all right, let's do it. Let's go to Oktoberfest. We got on a train to Munich. We had met these brothers who had been surfing in San Sebastian, and they're like, if you ever come to Germany, you have to stay with us for Oktoberfest. And so we're like, great. Uh, I'm going to call them the Fünf Brothers because my favorite German word is Fünf, which is five, but it sounds like someone's been kicked in the groin. So a couple of things that the Fünf brothers neglected to tell us. One, that they were uh, not living actually in Munich, but in the suburbs of Munich. And two, they were Orthodox Hungarian Jews. So we get there, we were like, well, let's go to Oktoberfest. And they're like, okay, 
spot. Um, it's the Sabbath, so we can't uh, drive in a car or spend any money. So we had to walk from the suburbs of Munich into Oktoberfest. Now, these kids couldn't handle money, and they couldn't drive in cars, but they had no problem getting drunk and ogling German girls. So we had a great time at Oktoberfest. We got good and sauced, but controlled for the most part. And at like 6 the next morning, I get woken up by the Fumpf brothers. Well, last night, you know, you said that you wanted to uh, join us for Yom Kippur. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. So I guess I was a little tipsier than I remembered. Ironically, Yom Kippur was the Jewish day of repentance. It's the day that you're supposed to be like, God, so sorry. Are we cool? Thank you, God. I'm not a religious person, but I thought, God, my mom would be so proud of me if she knew that I had gone to Yom Kippur services in Germany during Oktoberfest. So I got up, I put on the closest thing I had to a suit, uh, which is probably like half a later hosen, and uh, walked an hour and a half in the rain to uh, an old age home where they were helping to make a, a service. We got there at like 7.30 in the morning and we started to pray. Now I have gone to services for much of my life, but I couldn't follow anything. The other thing about Yom Kippur is you're not allowed to drink or eat anything. Now I was Oktoberfest hungover, dehydrated, starving, I can't drink or eat anything. And for 12 hours, I sit in a room with like 15 old German Jews just slowly dying. Not very repentant at all to God. Maybe the apology should go the other way. We finish up services, and I've been told that we're going to go break the fast at a pizza place. I'm so excited for that. I'm getting everyone's coats ready to be like, all right, Fumpf Brothers, we're all ready to go now. At which point, one of them comes up and they're like, so uh, our father was asked by the rabbi if we would stay to break the fast here at the old age home. <laughs> so I had to eat like old age home smoked fish. And I got home at probably about 9, 9.30. My buddies rolled home at midnight, hammered, and we had to get on a train the next morning. So the next morning I woke up, was packing, and realized that in my drunkenness, my first night at Oktoberfest, I had lost my wallet. So now I have no Eurorail pass, I have no wallet, and I have to get out of Germany. So I got on the train, and every time the conductor came through and I'd hear like, I would run to the bathroom and hide. So I literally left Germany hiding on a train. Does not get much more Jewish than that. And once I get to Paris, the French turned me in. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> Actor and comedian Nick Kroll, his new sketch comedy show, Kroll Show, debuts this Wednesday on Comedy Central. And you're listening to The Dinner Party from American Public Media, with apologies to France and Germany. And now, time for Chattering Class, when we are schooled by an expert in some dinner party-worthy topic. Today the subject is the dysfunction, or lack thereof, of offices. And our teacher is Tim Sullivan, along with Raymond Fisman. He wrote the book, The Org, The Underlying Logic of the Office. It came out this week. And Tim, welcome. Thanks, Rico. This book is kind of, sort of, almost a defense of something I think we all hate, which is office workplaces and all their inefficiency. Why is this 
of all things, something worth defending? Well, first of all, it's because where we spend all of our time. We spend more time at the office than we do with our family, with our children, with our loved ones. Yeah, but that's a nightmare. Yeah, but there's got to be something good about it, right? If we're going to spend all that time there, maybe it's just because we get paid. But I think the offices as a whole really do work better than we give them credit for. Hmm. Turns out, Organizations get a lot of great stuff done. We do more together than we could ever do separately. In, in the book, we tell the story about a guy, Scott Urban, who right. makes their awesome hand-carved wooden spectacles. Yeah, eyeglass frames. Yeah. He's a one-man operation, and he sells them. I don't know what his price is now. They're pretty close to $1,000. And he gets so frustrated. He goes to, like, Barney's in New York, and he sees that they're selling machine-made wooden spectacles for, you know, five times what he charges, mm -hmm. and they're inferior. Um, but at the same time, he's scared because he doesn't want to develop an organization that would compete. So he clearly isn't getting as much done as he could. Think of everything Scott could get done if he were to actually build an organization around the principles that he has. But what scares him is all the, you know, organizational stuff that comes with the increased efficiency. Ah, so you're not saying that organizations don't have their lame bureaucracies. You're just saying that it's kind of the least lame way to scale up and get some efficiency. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why organizations exist. Yeah. Something that also interested me in this book is you have, uh, we love history on this show, and yes. you have a history of the cubicle. Yes. Where did that, so it started as a, a torture device and I'm guessing, I don't know, Roman <laughs> times? towards the fall of the and Roman I, Empire, I would guess. Yeah, it has biblical roots. It actually sprang fully formed from the forehead of Satan. <laughs> yep. I don't remember which of the book of the Bible that's in, but I'm pretty sure that's... I no. think it's Revelations. In, in fact, it was created with the best of intentions, like so many things about our offices, by two guys who worked at Herman Miller, perhaps best known to public radio listeners as the designer of the Aeron chair, which comes in matte black. Uh, no, if, true black. Uh, true black. Thank you. <laughs> So they looked at the office, and at the time, in the early 60s, you had execs who got window offices, and then everybody else worked in a big bullpen in the middle, effectively under a bunch of fluorescent lights because, you know, all those offices around the outside closed off the natural light from mm -hmm. the workers. Oh, right. So they said this isn't the way to actually run an office. So they developed what they called the action office. And it was awesome. I kid you not, this thing was... Really? Uh, it came with like, yeah, it really was. It, it had no walls. You had your, like, filing cabinet went under your desk, and you had, like, a chair and a stool and an extra desk that could you could adjust the level so you could have a standing desk before mm. they were all hip in the rage. Yeah. Revolutionary, 1964, Herman Miller launches it with this great marketing campaign, and it is a total flop. Why? It's expensive, and it's too big. It takes up too much floor space. So they go back to the drawing board. And in 1968, Herman Miller launches the Action Office 2. The sequel. Yes. It has a stationary desk, three walls. It is cube-shaped. You might see where this is going. Mm. And it is widely adopted by offices. But I do have to say, to his credit, the second designer actually drops out of the project. Can I just read you his quote? Oh, yeah, go ahead. So George Nelson... He says, one does not have to be an especially perceptive critic to realize that the Action Office 2 is definitely not a system which produces an environment gratifying for people in general. <laughs> but it is admirable for planners looking for ways of cramming in a maximum number of bodies for employees, for personnel, corporate zombies, the walking dead, the silent majority. <laughs> 
a large market. This man was a prophet. Yeah, oh, clearly. But it all comes from the best of intentions, which is to bring in more light into the workspace. Bring in more light and give the office worker flexibility. But, you know, I ask you, if your thesis is that offices are the least lame way to do business, how did we end up with those? Because they are, in fact, the least lame way of doing business, sadly. <laughs> So compare really? those. Well, compare those to the alternatives. Like if you've got a pretty large company and you've got to get people into your office and they're all doing similar kinds of work, you don't have that many options. You could rent a giant building that's really expensive. Uh, you could build yourself a new space that was flexible and awesome for everybody. That's really, really expensive too. Or you could go back to the way the offices were in the 60s with, you know, this kind of giant wasteland of desk space with big black phones sitting on them with the executives taking up all of the good space. Those were nightmares. So from that point of view, having a, you know, five-foot low wall separating you from your colleagues and having your own private space is kind of a step up. So interesting chat, Rico, yeah. and it almost makes me not totally hate my cubicle. It's amazing, which, right? Which is a big surprise. Now Tim just needs to help me come to terms with our office's soft drink vending machine, which breaks every week and will not accept any money, so it just sits there like a big energy-sucking refrigerator you cannot open. <laughs> Tim, we await your sequel. I'm waiting. Please write that book. Hurry. Meanwhile, folks, we're going to take a break. Coming up, David O. Russell director of the movie Silver Linings Playbook, when the dinner party continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, we're going to chat with David O. Russell, director of the Oscar-nominated film Silver Linings Playbook. We'll also hear a new song from the new band, Foxygen. Yeah, are you sure you didn't make up that name? <laughs> Bad pun? No way. All right. Not I. But now, ladies and gentlemen, it is time for the main course where we talk about the best part of any dinner party, the food. So, Rico, a new year brings new trends. Yeah. Meggings come to mind. <laughs> not my mind. But... That would be leggings for men, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Yes. A new year brings not great trends, but also <laughs> some great trends, okay. like a French dessert that's been garnering some buzz. Right. Uh, last year, the Queen of Mon, a traditional pastry from Brittany, was the darling of the food world. I remember. But this year, Food & Wine magazine predicts another French regional specialty will become en vogue. Okay. And it is called? Well, since I'd never heard of it and I'm awful at speaking French, I visited <laughs> Marco Mall. He's the executive pastry chef at the Modern Restaurant in Manhattan. Right. He makes this dessert, and when I met with him, I asked him how to pronounce it. Uh, la Dequoise. Dequoise. Okay. Where does it come from? Uh, La Dacquoise uh, come from the uh, southwest of France, of uh, Dax. It's from the town of Dax, and Dacqua means from Dax, right? Yes, uh, where uh, in general people play rugby. They play rugby? Yeah, it's, uh, it's a region where they play rugby. It's where come uh, the tradition of foie gras. Really? So they stuff geese there? Yes, <laughs> they, they, they have a very... Uh, I think deep tradition. So they stuff geese, they play rugby, and they make this wonderful kind of meringue. Yes. So tell me how it's made. I, I took my uh, confectionery sugar. I add my almond. Almond flour, okay. Together. I whip my egg white. I start beginning with a little bit sugar. On the way up, just before it's getting a little bit hard, the egg white. Before they're getting stiff, yeah. Stiff. I add the rest of my sugar 
I fold my almond and tannic sugar. You fold it in. And I lay on the on the sheet pan with a parchment paper, a little bit greasy. This is on the sheet pan with parchment paper. Okay. Parchment paper with little bit uh, butter on the bottom of the parchment paper to give this kind of nutty taste when he co- when he is cooking and uh, cook that around 30 minutes, depending the size, and it's finished. You have many desserts here at The Modern. There's a whole repertoire of pastry. This one, it seems a little more difficult than others. To make it, seems like it's got, it takes a little bit longer because you have to tease in the sugar and the egg whites? No, it's, I think it's an easy one. Really? I think anybody, anywhere, can do adequate. Then how come not a lot of people do it? Uh, because they don't know. They just don't know. And uh, maybe some, sometime when you have a name like Daquas, maybe it scares them. But I think it's much more easy to do a Daquas than to do a cupcake. Why, why is that? Uh, f- no flour. You cannot mess up. And is only three elements. is egg white, sugar, and almond. And after that is your free uh, spirit going to make the different dish. But now aren't you worried now that people are going to know it's so easy, they may start popping up everywhere. Do you have a secret weapon in your decoin? Uh, it's not a secret weapon. It's, uh, when you go to a restaurant, you meet a little bit the spirit of the chef. It's not a danger for me to say it's easy to make and encourage people to do at home because it's so easy. So when was the first time you had one of these? Do you remember? The first time I have a daqua. Maybe when I met, I went to school when I was maybe 18 years old because my education when uh, I was working for my father. For people who don't know, you grew up on top of a chocolate shop, basically, and your father, you worked with him from a very young age. Yeah, I started with my father. He started me at when I was 13, but... Really, I start when I was nine years old in this kitchen. Is that, that has to be illegal in France. It's totally illegal, but uh, he have, uh, I think, no choice. He kicked me out of the, the, the kitchen, but I want to be a chef. I never thinking to be a firefighter or, or something else. I want, to be, uh, I want to do pastry. So it was your calling. All right, well, now let's turn to the, my calling, the whole reason I do this job. <laughs> Eating. <laughs> That's right. Now... Your de croix here is about the size of kind of a big belt buckle. The bottom is the meringue-esque de croix layer. It's about a half inch high, and it's layered with cream and chocolate. And I'm going to go in for a bite. Wow. It is so good, and the textures are incredible. It's got almost like a chewy undercurrent. Why does each region in France have its own little cake? I know last year the trendy cake was the Queen of Mont which is from Brittany? Because it's a different weather. France is so uh, different weather from the south, north, uh, east, and west can make really uh, a country with a lot of tradition and things different. But America is really big and we just have cupcakes everywhere. I don't think so. You have like, you go to Florida, you have Kilampai. That's a good point. And New York has cheesecake. But people seem to like French regional desserts. Is there another French regional dessert that you think is set to become popular? Canelé. The Canelé, yes. That's already in a bunch of restaurants. You have a lot of people right now showing that on the market. I, th- I think this is, this is it. We're going to have to go to a different country. Yeah, maybe. I, I, see, I see now friends get inspired from Americans. Really? The cupcake.
No, say it's not so. And Spain too. They have. Um, I saw many, many stores doing cupcakes. This is tragic. This maybe. Does it make you sad? No, no, no. I think so. I'm a guy working in New York. I'm French, half Spanish. I'm very happy because the the culture move. Every everything move back and forth. So, Rico, another way to think about the Dequas is to think of a flat, rectangular macaroon ah. layered with amazing, delicious things like uh, chocolate and berries. Sure, and I take it you would prefer thinking about that than about the cupcakeification of Europe. I've just blocked that part of the interview out of my mind. That is probably for the best. <laughs> Folks, if you want to learn more about Dequas and also about Brendan's long-running war against cupcakes, search our website. It is dinnerpartydownload.org. Our guest of honor this week is filmmaker David O. Russell. Among his many fine movies are Three Kings, The Fighter, and his new film Silver Linings Playbook. It is about an unlikely romance between a couple who both have psychological disorders. The film, it stars Bradley Cooper and Jennifer Lawrence, and also David's directing and screenplay all got Oscar nominations this week. And David, welcome. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. That's kind of you, really? Yeah, yes, Rico. It is for me. I'm not. I wouldn't shine you on because I'm going to be honest with you. <laughs> if you get old enough to go around the block on this, you lose your cynicism about it. At least I do. Really? Because otherwise, you know what? Just go get a job doing something else. You know, yeah. become a painter. I would recommend if you don't. If you don't want to, <laughs> if you end up here on this show or where we were yesterday at the Palm Springs International Film Festival, and I was saying nice. two years ago. They said you're going to be, you know, you're going to get honored over there. And I said, I don't understand what that is. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? The pumps. And they said, and Paramount said to me, that is a big deal. And I, in the back of my head, said, okay, sure. And then I got there, and it was a very big deal. It's bigger than the Oscars. Every actor, every stars go there. It is. (laughs) When you get there, it is a. There's 1,500 people in this auditorium. Everyone. From Ben Affleck to Tom Hanks is there, and that's uh, that's a wide range. <laughs> but that's fascinating. So basically, the Oscars is nothing. What we get all up in a, in a tizzy about in the media, no, we should be in Palm Springs. That's the real. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying it's part of the. There's this whole like Olympic pre-trials. They're like the Olympic pre-trials. Wow. And some, but it's a. But my point is coming back to your show. I've I've gone through these events in a daze over the years, not understanding where I am or who I'm dealing with and what is this event, and it can. Lead into a cynicism that I don't think it does you any favors. And now I am sincerely happy to be at these things. Because you can end up not being at them. I could not be here on your show. I could not be there. That's I could right. not have a film that is doing all this stuff. It's hard to do all that stuff. So treat me with respect, basically, Mr. Russell. I mean, yes, I am. That's my whole point. I, I realize know. it's probably more entertaining to you if I go into like an Elvis phase room in a drug-induced haze and I just don't treat anything with respect. Not at all. My, my own body or my peanut butter and fried banana sandwiches. I'm very entertained right now with you not in an Elvis <laughs> state. So just stay... Just as you are. Which also goes back to my other thing about what I think journalism can also do, which I'm a champion of the Lillian Ross School of Journalism. Do you know who she was? Was she a gossip columnist? No, hardly. She was this profiler from, that's not right, profilers are like, policeman. She wrote profiles for the New Yorker. Right. She did like Hemingway and a lot of other people. But 
she always made them real interesting. They weren't candy coated, but they weren't like blood sport trying to eviscerate people. They they were real, yeah. but they also anyway. You're like, okay, let's move on from this topic. No, no, no. I'm very. I'm. I'm <laughs> I mean, she, if you're saying that the bar that you're <laughs> raising for me is Lillian Ross, it's I'm not going to meet that today. Yes, you are. I believe in you. Okay, man. Let's see how it goes. Here's my actual first question now <laughs> to you. For for a lot of your career, you've made often very funny movies about very tricky or uncomfortable subjects. In this case, it's, you know, people with psychological disorders. Your first movie, Spanking the Monkey, dealt with incest. What draws you to that kind of juxtaposition where controversy smacks head on with humor? Well, to me, the humor just always has to come from the same place, which is a place of what's real and raw. So I would, in my view, I consider Raging Bull or Goodfellas to be two of the funniest movies I've ever seen. And obviously not the whole picture, yeah, yeah. but you'd say, oh my God, who are these people? And that's sort of a, that's a different kind of funny than I'm making jokes, you know? So the same thing that's going to make you really upset is also going to make you laugh. Now that said, that you're no stranger to controversial topics, you spent a lot of time getting this particular subject right. You've spent an inordinate amount of time in the editing room, I'm, I understand. What made this movie harder to nail the tone of than these others? Uh, the reason is that when Sidney Pollack gave me the book, he said, this is a tough one. It was the year that he died he gave me the book. I, and I had been looking for a story that I could tell what my experiences had been with my son who has suffered from bipolar and other mood disorders. Yeah. And uh, when I mean suffer, I mean scenes that you don't want to go through. So I was looking for a story to tell that would make my son feel a part of the world. And, and when Sidney gave me the book, I said, oh, this could be that story, Matthew Quick's novel. And I said, he said, how are you going to get the tone right, Sidney Pollack said. And I said, well, I think I know it from the inside. I've been there. But there was a balancing act. And that meant we shot scenes many different ways. Yeah, yeah. There was a very dark version of this film, much darker. But it was good to have that in some measure. But it was also good that we had medium and lighter. Which you clearly ended up with a little more of. Yeah. So is this the girl you wrote about? Yeah. What? You wrote about me? I'm the girl? He wrote about you, all right. What did he say? He said you guys was helping each other out, and you were nice, and you had a mouth on you, but... Whoa, 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 you, okay. You okay. mouthy, yeah, yeah. but... No, please, tell me more about what he said in the letter. Yeah, anything you want to know, I'll just tell you in the letter. It was nothing about it. It was just a very general letter. Cool. She's fine. She is my friend with an F. A capital F. For a friend. This is ultimately a romantic comedy by the end of it, as much as we're talking about the sort of dark elements of the film. It isn't to me, but people say that. It ain't to me. Really? But it resolves yeah. so... Spoiler alert. It resolves so positively. Well, but that's the name of the movie is Silver Linings Playbook. So, I mean, I was not going to make a movie for my son or anybody like those people that had a dark ending because I happen to agree with Bradley Cooper's character when he's ranting about A Farewell to Arms, the Hemingway book. You know, is it really... This is the ending that he comes up with? That she dies, everybody dies in the end? Isn't life hard enough? Would it, it would be so hard to come up with a good ending? I, I think that's a valid position. But you just said, on the other hand, that you still see the movie as not... Uh, I just despise that term. I don't even... I just hate that term. It doesn't mean anything to me. Romantic comedy? I, or Yeah, I would never say I'm going to make a romantic comedy. Because I think that true cinema sort of transcends genre, and it's not... You don't think of it that way. That's like a glib way that turns your brain off, and I would never want to, as a filmmaker, make a film that way. All right, well, we're getting to the end of this interview, and we ask uh, all of our interviewees two standard questions, and you may have just <laughs> answered the first one, but I'm going to run it by you anyway. It is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question would you least like to be asked? 
What are you kind of sick of hearing? I don't. I, I when when people ask me, you know, and I think Ben Affleck has spoken about this too. He said it's a wonderful privilege to be spoken about just for your work instead of things that happened like three presidential administrations ago. You yeah, know? And yeah. so for people like, you're bringing up stuff that happened during the Clinton administration. <laughs> you're just going to keep painting me with that brush about some conflict I had 12 years ago, okay. you know, all that stuff. So you don't want to talk about conflicts that happened in the past, but you don't mind talking generally about your past life. Oh, that also, that happened to me. The BAFTA guys do an interview with you, you know, in front of the BAFTA people. The British that, Academy of Arts. There you go. I said down and he starts out with like your childhood and and you're like I don't wait what I thought we were going to talk about Silver Linings Playbook we're starting in my childhood sure. the year was 1965 long... <laughs> exactly, exactly we have here a police report that you stole a pack of Wrigley's chewing gum what say you Russell let me ask you did you ever steal anything I did actually it was a pack of juicy fruit gum and my parents brought me back to the store and made me apologize. That is my identical experience but not with a pack of gum. What Mine was it? Was like, you know remember those square erasers you could get they were kind of brown they were like a cube shape. Yeah. And my mother kept saying, "Do you want anything? Do you want anything?" <laughs> I was in New, I was in New York City and I was like, "No." No. And then and then like some weird it's like the devil gets a hold of you and you're like I'm going to take this and put it in my pocket. I'm going to do it my way on my terms. And my mother will not be involved. What is wrong with us? <laughs> I, would, I was going to ask you our second question, but you may have just answered it with that anecdote, which is uh, tell us something we don't know. We now know you're a kleptomaniac. Hey, hey, look at that. Look how that happens. <laughs> that is what is called sensationalism. Russell kleptomaniac. Next <laughs> headline. Right. So uh, the other thing that is good is that uh, singing is a wonderful thing that I found. I can thank my, my ex-wife for that because she sang all the time. And I never used to sing. I was afraid to sing. I sang out of key. And it was by allowing myself to sing badly for many years that I eventually started to sing in key. And I can I really enjoy singing songs that I really love, sometimes just with friends or by myself. What are the songs you really love? Maybe we can go out on one of them. Here we go. Come fly with me, come fly, let's fly away. Uh, If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in Old Bombay. And you're you're telling me that you don't like romantic comedy, please. We can do better than that word. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. Enrico, I know this is usually where we add an additional piece of information about the guest or crack a joke, but I really think we should just, you know... Forget all that and listen to Frank. Exactly. Done. Let's fly, let's fly away. Come fly with me, let's float down to Peru. And that's the dinner party for this week, folks. Jackson Musker is our assistant producer. Our interns are Tamika Adams and James Kim. Thanks also to Charlton Thorpe. Peter Clowney and our friends at the Public Radio Business Show, Marketplace. And now, before we leave you, it is time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. Sam France and Jonathan Ratto are the songwriting duo behind the band Foxygen. Their new album, We Are the 21st Century Ambassadors of Peace and Magic, comes out later this month. It gets better and better. Here's a song off it called San Francisco. Bon appetit.
Thanks for attending the dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And I'm Rico Galliano. Come on, fly with me. Come fly, let's fly away. Is he still here? Uh, he likes the acoustics. <laughs>